It's a very sobering feeling to be up in space and realize that one safety factor was determined by the lowest bidder on a government contract. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Jamie, who was that? My main man, Mr. Alan Shepard. Alan Shepard. I mean, I love Alan Shepard and and you love him more than me, so you must really love him. <laughs> Everyone loves Alan Shepard. Oh. The reason why he's quoted, you'll, you'll see in a second. Yeah. But I thought I'd just quickly flag up, I, I'm going to be a moderator, Jamie, at a uh, space conference. Check you out. Can yeah, you tell yeah, us some details? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes, it's for spacetalks.biz. That's spacetalks.biz. On the 5th of March in London at a venue near St. Paul's. So if you want to come and uh, join in, let's read some burb. It's a conference. is a unique opportunity not only to discuss and experience the future of the industry, but also to meet and network with key industry leaders. OMG. Well, that sounds incredible. So if you want to go and throw rotten tomatoes at Matt, get yourself down on uh, March the 5th. So I, I assume tickets and everything can be bought from or... or got from spacetalks.biz, Matt? Correct. There we go. Absolutely correct. So the inference there is I'm a key industry leader, Jamie. I just thought I'd point that out. Yeah, weird how they didn't invite me. (laughs) I guess I'm not not key. Or maybe I'm not a leader. I don't know. You're a key industry number two. (laughs) I'm more like a fluffer, aren't I? I'm like an industry, I'm a space industry fluffer. You're more the Riker to my Picard. I'll take that. Yeah, I'll take that. Send in the clowns. Uh, Matt, on this day, yes, 31st of January, mm-hmm. Ham, the astro chimp. I mean, this guy, the Yuri Gagarin of apes, yeah. born in Central Africa, <laughs> at the age of four, he became the first hominidae in space. 1961, Mercury Project astronaut. I mean... I don't know where to start. I'm so excited. Well, I, I hope he was treated fairly. Well, I mean, he didn't have much choice in it. I'm a bit upset about that. <laughs> well, he was four years old, little fella. Yeah, born in Africa, dragged over to some zoo in Miami, and then and then picked out by the Air Force. Basically, he was he was one of eighty chimps. So he was whittled down from eighty chimp candidates, and he right. was officially called Chimp Sixty Five. Ham itself is an acronym, Jamie. You'll be here pleased to hear. Oh, you know I love it, and it goes and it stands for <laughs> Holloman Aerospace Medical Center. Oh, okay, yeah, I like it. But the boss of Holloman Aerospace Medical Center was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton Ham Blackshear. That's a, a, a how ace a name is that? Right. Tell you what, we're bang about Lieutenant Colonel Hamilton Ham Blackshear. We could do a whole podcast on great space names. <laughs> That's going up there in the top 10 for me. Yeah, well, Chimp65, they didn't want to name him before they before he actually come back safely because the press, if they had to write about a named animal, it might be more upsetting. Of course. Because it's more humanised, isn't it? And and so... I mean, I say, of course, it's it's... It's wildly cruel uh, to send any uh, any animal well, against their will 
into space for an experiment. However... Well, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it? If I, I guess a lot of that has to come down to whether, um, whether Ham was suffering from too much stress. So Chimp65, mm. or as his handlers called him, Chop Chop Chang. Okay. And the mission patch is has even got Chop Chop Chang on the front of it. I'm looking at it now. I mean, it's a great patch. It is a great although, patch. I might, I might again, buy Again, I feel... I feel kind of <laughs> uneasy, Matt, talking I, I, about this. Well, well, see how uneasy you feel now. So he was he oh, was God. obviously flown on a Mercury Redstone rocket, Mercury Redstone mm. 2, MR2, and he was trained by a chap called Joseph Vincent Brady, who was actually a pioneer of behavioural pharmacology and okay. also a, a pioneer of human research ethics. So it's not like the ethics was lost on this guy. And uh, he trained. Yeah, he trained. Human. Yeah, yeah, human ethics. <laughs> he trained. <laughs> he trained up Ham uh, to respond to lights and sounds. And he did this right. by. <laughs> he did this by giving Ham electric shocks to his feet if he failed oh, to push a lever in response to lights and sounds. But he did get a delicious <sighs> banana pellet if he did good. I hate this. <laughs> so. Unlike the preceding primate flights, Ham actually flew. So he wasn't just a sort of passive passenger. He he was actually a really important test pilot. Um, mm. he, essentially, he's a Mercury astronaut, and he was testing the systems for Alan Shepard, who would go up less than a year later to become the first American in space. Well, I'm kind of speechless. I mean, I, I guess... <laughs> Are you going to tell me that the chimp died? I don't want to ruin the ending, but did the chimp come back okay? <laughs> so, yes. Well, they measured. So, well, while Ham was up, like a sort of Formula One race racing driver, his vital yeah. signs were monitored from the ground and his performance. And his performance was apparently was only marginally slower than test flights, uh, which which was really promising news in terms of human beings actually being able to function in space because here, sure. here there was a hominidae actually functioning in space i think the word hominidae is quite new jamie to i think it it encompasses the great apes and the hominids just I in case you're wondering that, I, it was the it was the first time i'd heard it yeah well, I, I thought it was all i thought it was simian i thought was the word i think no a lot of those phrases have all become very um inaccurate it's it's amazing how much that keeps changing all that stuff all the way that you yeah. classify things it, it, it's yeah it's it's an odd one but yes it's it, it, he's the first of the great apes and hominids so you know up there he's up there with sentient beings <laughs> well i think but absolutely but you there. still haven't found whether he died or not jamie but so his spaceship unfortunately depressurized uh but the good news here is that Ham's spacesuit was extremely good, and so he didn't suffer at all. And after 16 minutes flying around in space, he eventually splashed down with only a bruised nose. A bruised nose. Bruised nose. Well, I guess it could have been worse. So he went to live a, a, a nice, happy life until he was 25, yeah. mostly at the National Zoo in Washington. And... When he died, the Americans thought about copying the Russians, who, as you know, had Belka and Strelka, the space dogs, 
They yes. had those special animals stuffed, and you can still see them on display. Uh, but that's not really the kind of taste of the American public, or by the sounds of it, Jamie Franklin either. So, not. so he was buried properly at the International Space Hall of Museum, at uh, the Space Hall of Fame, sorry. And uh, Son's skeleton, unfortunately, that skeleton is actually part of the collection of the National Museum of Health and Medicine. Okay. But here's an, an interesting little side note to all this, Jamie. Ham's right. backup pilot was a female chimp, and she um, was the only female chimp on the entire programme, which for me suggests that female chimps were better because it, out of if there's 79 males and one female and she's like in the top two, doesn't that doesn't that kind of suggest statistically that Absolutely. female chimps are better. So um, she became the last surviving astro chimp and died at the age of 41, so twice, almost twice Ham's age, uh, in 1998 after having nine kids for the Air Force breeding program. Blimey, what a matriarch. Yeah. But 31st of January, Jamie, is not only famous for Ham, well, they, I think that's the big one. But there's two other pretty exciting events that also happened on the 31st of January, like really cool. big, big ones. So Explorer 1, the first ever US satellite, hot on the heels of yeah. Sputnik, uh, fourth satellite ever. Um, it's the first of 90 Explorer satellites. So Explorer 1 is the first of 90 of them. Went up on your favourite named rocket, Jamie, the Juno. Ah, oh, Juno, yes. <laughs> Uh, and the Explorer 1, unlike Sputnik, did proper science and basically discovered the Van Allen belts, which is a pretty uh, amazing thing. It's and, pretty important, that. And going back to females, it was an all-female computer team who were responsible for doing all the maths. They had to do it all by hand, okay. and they plotted basically the satellite trajectories. Of course they did. The computers, Slay my queens. And 10 years after Ham in 1971, we, of course, have Apollo 14, which included Alan Shepard, Stuart Rooser and Edgar Mitchell, who uh, went to the Fra Moro Highlands on the moon. That is a strong lineup right there. It is a strong lineup, isn't it? But Alan Shepard, yeah. So that was Alan Shepard's chance to go to the moon after becoming the first man Shepherd, in space. What a Rooser, dude. Mitchell. Saturn. Damn. Yeah. So I shall tell you what's happening this weekend, Jamie, that I think is quite, well, quite exciting. We've talked about it on the show. You don't hear about it very much, so I'm you know, I'm flying its flag a little bit. MEV1. Yeah, MEV1. Which uh, is that an acronym? Uh yes, it is an acronym, but what is it for? Mission Extension Vehicle One. Yes, so okay. it's there to extend the lives of space vehicles. Uh, and it's going to rendezvous with Intelsat 901 and essentially drag it off into another orbit for a bit to do a bit of testing. And then it's going to operate uh, Intelsat 901 for another five years so that the Intelsat 901 can keep going longer which saves quite a lot of money because this Intelsat nice. is pretty goddamn expensive. 
So we talked about yeah. it at the time. It's built by Northrop Grumman or Orbital ATK as it was before it got bought by Northrop Grumman. And yeah, launched in ninth, on the 9th of October on a Proton with our favourite upper stage, the Breeze M. Oh, the Breeze, the Breeze M. M. Uh, That's B-R-I-Z-M. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's it, the, it's not a refueling mission. So it, as we said before, that is incredibly complicated because you'd if to refuel, you'd have to open the satellite up, drain it, put the fuel in, which is extremely volatile, seal it all up, make sure all the interfaces and everything are correct and separate from the spacecraft. So orders of magnitude more complex. Um, mm. But yes, it's just going to, it just attaches itself to the um, spacecraft and does all the station keeping exercises. But once it's done, it has the ability to sort of undock and dock again with another spacecraft. So the MEV-1 can last about 15 years, so it should be able to do it with a couple more other satellites. So it's quite a, an efficient way of dealing with things. I heard somewhere that you you were quite an efficient docker. Is that true? Jack, I'm, I doubt that that's going to stay. <laughs> Pardon the expression. <laughs> is what he said to me. <laughs> that, is, that is is so... I might actually leave it in now. Is that what he said is... to me. <laughs> <laughs> I might leave it in there. Oh, God. Oh, that's uh, good. That's good stuff. Oh, that's a tonic. Okay, where were we? Sorry. Well, a bit of news this week, Jamie. It, this is the kind of news that you can either feel great about or sad about. Oh, God. Not another ape. Not another ape. <laughs> no, no. It's not an ape. It's not that sad. Um, okay. Although, you know, Ham did survive. And how many yeah. how many chimps can say they've been to space? Yeah. It's a tough one. Remember, you know, if you're testing a vehicle for humans... Matt, do you think Ham walked back into the zoo, like, strutting his stuff, and it, all the ladies were like, oh, my God, what was it like? And he was just like, oh, what? What, zero G? Yeah, it was all right. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. All right. You're winning me round, but not not much. It's a tough one, isn't it? I suppose, yeah, it's, it's hard to put sentient beings into the... I mean, could they have asked Ham? Maybe they said... Maybe they could ask Ham and say, Ham, how do you feel about going into space? And then Ham See, signed, signed back, yeah, yeah, it's cool. I don't think it is a tough one. <laughs> I think it, it's just inherently cruel. <laughs> Job done, full stop. Job done, full stop. But I'm glad that he, I'm glad that he came back alive, at least. Yeah, 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 no, true. Um, there we go. Um, yeah, so a SpaceX Falcon, it's not, it's, it's, it involves no cruelty to animals, this one. Um, well, actually, I suppose it might involve cruelty to animals, actually, Jamie. We, uh, the, the Falcon oh. 9, uh, the uh, booster, Falcon 9 booster 105.1.3 um, has flown again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, after after it, it actually threw the Crew Dragon capsule up to the ISS and launched a mm. bunch of Canadian satellites. This is its third time, and it's flown another batch of 60 Starlinks. It seems every week now we just say, oh, yeah, there's another Jeez. 60 Starlinks going up. Another 60 up. Much to the chagrin of astronomers and space environmentalists. And the reason why I say it might be cruel to animals, of course, is there's all these new lights in the sky that might that might be confusing to certain animals. It might be confusing. They might think that uh, it, it's it's daytime. Maybe there's some chimp in some part of Central Africa looking up at the sky and going, what, oh, what the hell is going on? 
Yeah. Get a little bit scared and distressed. How can Musk possibly afford it? <laughs> uh, but, uh, but then he sort of goes back to the other chimps and the other chimps say, yeah, it's going to be brilliant because we'll, we'll get internet access soon, even in this rubbishy bit of the jungle. No, and he turns around to him and says, it's not rubbish. This is, this is brilliant. We're, we're lucky to be in pure nature. We don't need modern life. And they're all like, shut up, granddad. We want an iPad. And all those chimp tea parties are going to be ruined by all the chimps looking at their mobile phones instead of looking at each other's eyes over the tops of their little cups of tea. This is it. Hashtag PG tips. <laughs> so uh, in a similar news story, uh, which I think is really pertinent, there was an I, I was watching Twitter unfold around this one. There's a really great company called Leo Labs, a great yeah. organization called Leo Labs, and they warned on Twitter, this is this is what they said, we are monitoring a close approach event involving IRIS-13777, the decommissioned space telescope launched in 1983, and GGSE-4, an experimental US payload launched in 1967. They have a combined velocity of 4.7 kilometres a second. Two large satellites are going to come within 50 metres of one another. Now, at some point, they thought it was down to 15 metres. I was reading it, so surely that must be miles. No, 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 it's metres. It's like, what the hell? So, yeah, there there was a risk, a one in a hundred chance, and actually it got a little bit higher than that at some point but a one in a hundred chance that these two things were going to hit each other and this is what our mate jonathan mcdowell said and he said uh given that the size of the satellites are about the size of a car and a rubbish bin a 15 to 30 meter predicted miss distance is alarming yeah that is alarming my god well and one of the satellites has got a 60 foot boom arm dangling down the back of it so you can't really be sure that it's going <laughs> to miss at all like if it, any it's bit of it say. touches it's going to smash it into like just unbelievable smithereens it's not what we need matt more space junk but i watched a lot of astronomers go out into the into their urban light polluted areas with small telescopes to actually look at this bright spot as it trailed across the sky and and made sure that they could still see the bright spot trailing across the sky after the uh, impact event and luckily yes. luckily they could Jamie so it was over Pittsburgh oh. 550 miles above Pittsburgh at the time and they missed but if they'd if they'd have hit it could have endangered hundreds of other satellites uh, with with the debris. And, of course, that debris field would stay around for a very long time. Something has to be done. Something has to be done, Jamie. And and, and I don't mean stick up hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Starlinks. Yeah, that's definitely not going to help. My God. Hmm. Oh, what a relief. Do you know what, Matt? When you said Pittsburgh, a couple of weeks ago I had a really weird dream that I was in Pittsburgh and it was amazing. And I, I lived in this house that looked really Gothic. And, um, and so I'm wondering if it's a sign. Is anyone listening from Pittsburgh? Get in touch with me. Maybe I need to go and visit. Maybe my destiny is there. Wow. Wouldn't that? Yeah. When you said Pittsburgh, it, it, that the house that I dreamt about flashed in my head really strongly. I think, I think (laughs) it's a sign. Wow. Wouldn't that be amazing if, if, if someone got in contact and then you ended up living in Pittsburgh. Someone got in contact and went, 
oh, it's weird you should say that because we're looking for a more handsome than most uh, space podcaster to come and live here. There's there's a house up for rent. It's a, it's an old Gothic building. And because it's old and Gothic, the doorways are quite short, and so lots of tall buyers aren't aren't interested. <laughs> yeah, it's specifically made for somebody who's five foot seven and a half. And I'll be like, oh my god. <laughs> This is perfect. Matt, we're going to Pittsburgh because obviously you've got to come too. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll have to buy a house nearby. And then we'll we'll go and buy a chimp from the zoo and free ah. it. And it will live in our garden. Ja- and it just lives on <laughs> banana pellets. But we never... Electrocute its Never feet. send it to space or electrocute <laughs> it. Yeah. Um, uh, Jamie, did you see, talking of like trippy dreams, did you yeah. see the beautiful and i do mean beautiful video of the sun's surface that was released i did not only did i see it the wallpaper on my phone is now that golden honeycomb image it's it's, quite stunning it is quite stunning yeah so you can see structures that are only 30 kilometers across on the surface of the sun and this has been made possible by the largest solar telescope the four meter daniel k inui solar telescope that's on the Halekala 3,000 metre high volcano in Hawaii on the island of Maui. We need to go. We We really need to go to Hawaii. I'd so love to do that. So anyone in Hawaii and Pittsburgh, get in touch. And Do you know what the really exciting thing about this is? This is one of those missions where there's lots of things going on because there's an ESA or, well, ANISA and NASA Solar Orbiter, SOLO. And that's going to be a new space observatory that's being launched next week from Cape Canaveral. And that is going to get closer to the sun than any other satellite ever. So that's only 42 million kilometres away. That's ne- much nearer than Mercury. So that's like flying within wow. within the orbit of Mercury. And the the weird thing the resolution won't be as good you know these 4 meter telescopes on the ground that's like so hard to do in space because you just haven't got the the uh, fairing size or the rocket size to be able to launch something like that so uh this this solar telescope although it the resolution won't be as good it's got a much broader spectrum of measurements so it's more broadband right and so if you combine the resolution of the Earth-based telescope and this uh, sort of broad range of frequencies that the solar orbiter can do, you're going to get the most detailed pictures ever of the sun. And that's going to be just oh, so that, cool. Honestly, that stuff blows my mind. And, and that's what really excites me. When we get these images that we've never seen before, and it's like, how did we get that? It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's definitely worth watching that video just just with your favourite bit of music, maybe the podcast theme music, and, and just listen to the video and and just watch it. It's absolutely transfixing the way it wobbles around. Well, so good. Matt, you, you know the story of Icarus and his father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm well aware of attempting him. To es- attempting to escape Crete, I believe it was. By means of, of obviously the wings that I think his dad made out of feathers and wax, and he got too close to the sun. So let's hope that there's no wax involved, man. Mm. 
I'm I'm pretty certain they won't have used wax on the solar orbiter. Uh, <laughs> it's very tempting, isn't it, to call solar orbiters like that Icarus? Uh, of course, um, da- I think da- isn't Daedalus the uh, Daedalus the father of Icarus? Actually, I think you're right. No, you are right for sure. Yeah, yeah there you go. He was a he was a master craftsman, I believe, Matt. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, we all need to brush up on our Greek mythology after this call. There will be a test. Daedalus is the name of uh, Alan Bond's interstellar, fully fledged interstellar spacecraft, and also I think the name of the spacecraft in the National Geographic program Mars. Well, so there we go, uh, Jamie. Yeah. My favourite bit of news of the week. It's not really my favourite bit of news of the week. It's really quite ridiculous. Uber billionaire Yasuki Mazawa has now backtracked on his plans to solicit a woman (laughs) for a SpaceX moon journey. Uh, What's he said now? He's uh, he's actually said to think that 27,722 women with earnest intentions and courage had used their precious time to apply, makes me feel extremely remorseful to conclude and inform everyone with this selfish decision of mine. Uh, okay, well, what's he actually saying, though? Is he, is he not he's doing not it? He's not doing it now. He's not doing it now. He's, oh, he's, no shit, he's, he's decided for personal reasons. It never felt quite right for him, so he's decided yeah. not to <laughs> do it. Never felt quite right, and everyone told him that he's, <laughs> and, <laughs> he's just going to make the worst decision of his life yeah. if he goes ahead. It, it's not very modern, is it, really? No, no, it's really not. Oh, dear. Oh. Anyway, so, Matt, you told me... Yeah. That we've got an interview we today. Do. We do have uh, an and, interview. And do pray. Who is it? It is Andrew Jones. Yes. Yes, Andrew Jones, who a lot of you will know because he is pretty much the the best sort of Chinese space program Twitter Twitterer and also writes for lots and lots of other... He's uh, really well, good. Well, yes, a prolific Chinese space program journalist. So he writes for Space News, yes. Planetary Society, Space.com, IEEE, Sky and Telescope. So he writes for all of those. The links I'll put in the blogs to his for, to his various um, articles because they're always very, very interesting. It's all it's often where I get the, any any Chinese always news that we interesting. have. Yes. Yeah, if you're not following Andrew, please uh, please get involved. Yeah. So uh, without any further delay how about a coote a coote the interplanetary podcast putting the ace back into space so welcome to the podcast andrew thanks very much for having me give us a little rundown of the recent chinese space endeavors and where you think they're possibly going to go and then we'll drill down into some of those areas in more detail Absolutely. Well, if this was um, even two or three years ago, then it would be a lot easier, I think, to give an overview of what's been going on. Last few years, there's been a big acceleration in the launch rate. The Some of the, the bigger plans that they've had for, uh, say, exploration and space science and for new launches have become a lot more concrete, so we know what's going on. And Basically, what we're dealing with now is a comprehensive space program that the Chinese have, which uh, covers all areas of civilian, human spaceflight, military, commercial. And all of this seems to be some kind of strategic vision that they have for outer space. 
which would have implications in a number of areas. Um, so developing China's economy, high technology, spin-offs, applications and so on um, for the military, for power projection as China becomes a much more global player, deterrent and so on, uh, diplomacy um, on the commercial side as well about developing a space-related economy. Lots going on and it can be quite challenging just to kind of um, wake up in the morning and see what's going on and there's all kinds of companies and launch plans, announcements. We're just drilling down a little bit. Is there is there something, say, cultural or political that means that China have been able to have this really accelerated rate of growth in this particular sector? Because it seems to me it, it, it's almost unprecedented. Like you said, like a few years ago, we wouldn't even be talking about it. And then suddenly, here we are. And in 2019, they had more launches than America, quite considerably more, if you take out the electron launches and things like that. So it was, it's kind of, well, they're, they're on the, the stage, aren't they, as a space superpower already in a very short time is is there a kind of you know is is that down to a, a cultural chinese thing or is it down to the the way that their political system works what, what what's your feeling on that well china did actually join the spacefaring nations a long time ago so they had the first launch in 1970 mm. and even in the aftermath of sputnik uh, mao Zedong, who's then the the leader had noted that china is interested in launching satellites and this was primarily national defense so they, they wanted launchers to be able to launch nuclear payloads for example so very early on they they recognized that okay this is important um and then following the mao era the end of the cultural revolution you had uh deng xiaoping come into power post 1978 and he had the understanding that China's always kind of going to be behind the other powers if it doesn't make a concerted effort in certain areas. And one of these areas was space and just generally high technology. So things were able to kind of bubble along during the, the, the harsh years of the Cultural Revolution where there wasn't really a strong economy at all, wasn't many funds, but that was they managed to keep things going. Into the 80s, with um, the start of rapid economic growth, they managed to lay out some plans to develop uh, weather satellites, uh, communication satellites, generally developing more launches with different capabilities to different orbits and so on, and slowly be able to, to build up and slowly kind of catch up in the, the infrastructure that they have in outer space. So looking at what the... Western powers and the Soviet Union have been doing and kind of build towards that. So what we're seeing now is long-term plans such as the, the Beidou uh, positioning and navigation constellation, which started like, say, around 2000. So that's part of a way to make China not dependent on GPS, which would have implications for say, military uses, so for guidance and tracking of targets and guidance of missiles and so on, but also then economic benefits with um, downstream applications. The Beidou system has been that's taken up a large part of the number of launches in recent years. Remote sensing, all these kinds of things, um, they've slowly been built up. Um, on the political side, I would say that Communication satellites, I mean, that's important for um, news and video and so on. But when you look at the size of China, 
and how remote some of these areas are. It was clear to the Chinese Communist Party that having communication satellites out in geo would allow you to kind of send their message into places in China, which otherwise would be very difficult to reach with like terrestrial kind of uh, telecommunications infrastructure. So there, there are political aspects. I suppose what we've seen is you have this uh, China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, which has kind of changed names and changed a bit over the years. But that's grown to around 200,000 employees, I right. think. Yeah. Somewhere around about there. So they've been very busy in certain areas. They've had certain launch rates, um, lots of different plans, which would need to be brought to fruition. For, for example, in 1992, they brought in this human spaceflight plan, which would be to be able to put astronauts into orbit, then launch some test modules, which were the Tiangong and Tiangong-2 space labs, and then build a, a modular space station. So they've, they've had these kind of things on the back burner. Um, what we're seeing now, which is starting to add to the launch rates, would be the opening of a commercial sector. So before 2014, or before tw late 2014, almost all the space activities were going through this um, China Aerospace Science and Technology Corporation, or CASC, which I can hopefully use from now on. Mm. Um, there was a central government decision in late 2014 where, having looked at what SpaceX was doing and Planet Labs and so on, they realized that, okay, this kind of state-run or state-owned enterprise system that we have is a bit cumbersome. So we can release what kind of expertise and kind of um, capital that we have into another sphere of activity where they can kind of transfer technology and start developing launches and small satellites. So you have this CASC now and the Chinese Academy of Sciences and kind of a sister corporation to CASC, which is more focused on missiles and so on. So these kind of three main bases, you've seen lots of employees leave the, their workplaces and go and start up companies. So you have things like Space T, which are making small satellite platforms and allowing other companies to kind of put things into space. Um, so lots of light launch rockets, which are coming to the markets and coming onto the pad for testing and so on. So it's a, it's a real explosion in that sense, but it's been kind of building over, over decades into what we're seeing now. So it, it's not kind of like a, a sudden rush. There's been expertise and capital and um, resources which have been building, and now they're kind of being deployed on a, a large scale. From, from, from an outsider looking into China, it seems that they take their education system extremely seriously and want this kind of very highly educated Chinese, particularly in science and technology, and, and the fact that you see so many Chinese students in British and American universities doing those subjects. With with such a huge population doing that, presumably when they when when this population goes back and they they're taking all this science and technology with them, we're going to see China start to really take leaps and bounds in the kind of uh, technology and science development of of space as well, just because they've just got the the huge numbers of of actual brains uh, going into that subject. Yeah, that's a that's a, an interesting point. So, um, I think one of the outside perspectives is that China struggles to to 
innovate in in some ways. And I suppose in the space sector, you can kind of see some of that. I mean, looking at the the launches, they had a lot of help from the, the Soviet Union in developing the older hypergolic long march launch vehicles. And a lot of these like Long March 2, 3, 4, they're kind of derivative. They use similar engines and, and, and so on. And that, that had been serving them for, for a long time. But now um, I was speaking to one Western company who had been dealing recently with, with China. And they kind of had the same impression that, um, you know, there's lots of resources, there's lots of um, education. Uh, so, for example, you have Beihang University, which is an aerospace university, and you have so many graduates coming out of that each year. So there's um, a great kind of base for, for China to, to build on. But that there's still a, a gap in innovation. And she was saying that there's an opportunity still for kind of European and maybe American companies to a less degree, given the political challenges, that they, they can take advantage of uh, opportunities where in areas where China's still lagging or lacking certain expertise and they can fill these areas and uh, make a bit of money and really get involved in these space endeavors endeavors <clears throat> yeah I, mean, I suppose we, we could really drill down into 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 why that um, why that kind of imagination why there's an imagination gap yeah innovation gap um, but I guess that's a that's a huge subject, isn't it? To sort of start <laughs> digging down into, I, I suspect, because it, I, I, yeah, I, I think that would have a cultural element to it, and maybe the fact that, yeah, that 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 level of education, I suppose, hasn't been around long enough. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th- this is one of the fascinating and very challenging and daunting things about covering China is there's so many different kind of aspects to everything that's going on. So you've already mentioned some the political and cultural aspects, which there are, and then there's education, and then you can really get kind of um, spend a long time trying to work out how that plays into the space sector and so on. So yeah, it, it's overall, it's just absolutely fascinating to follow. And try to kind of think about where this is going to go and why. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let, let's drill down into some specifics then. So I'm going to start with uh, drilling down into, uh, say, their ambitions for the moon. Now, I was talking to Helen Sharman just at the uh, close of the year, and she was under the kind of had the feeling that we might see Chinese boots on the moon before American boots. Where, what do you think about that one? Oh, I think that's a, that's a that's a big call. Um, so of course we have the Artemis program, which is aiming for 2024, which I think most observers would say is very very ambitious. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of factors going up against that. Um, you know, realizing that date. I think for China, actually landing on the moon. Um, well, the first thing I should say that there is no officially approved. Um, project to put Chinese astronauts on the moon. However, although they haven't explicitly, you know, said they're going to do this and it's funded and it's it's not in the um, the, the space white papers or the five year plans that they have, we can see that they're working towards this through developing the different components that you would need. So um, we just had a. Uh, kind of confirmation this week that the first Long March 5B launch will take place um, in the first half of the year. And it looks like maybe April for this. So that's a launcher which they are going to use to launch 
space station modules. But for this test launch, there will be um, kind of an uncrewed test flight of a new generation crewed spacecraft. So it's kind of a much bigger than the Shenzhou. Um, it would be capable of handling the hard radiation of um, deep space, but also um, making a high energy re-entry after you know coming back from the moon. So that's one aspect uh, they're working on. Um, there are designs which have been shown at um, space and uh, air shows of a, a new launch vehicle which could potentially send a spacecraft to the moon, like a, a crewed spacecraft. So this would be kind of three five-meter diameter cores put together. Um, so kind of looking like a Falcon Heavy, but using Long March 5 technology and similar engines. So that would, if they do go ahead with working on that launcher, because they have the, the cores kind of sorted out, um, and the engines, these Carolox engines, they would, that would maybe be able to speed things up. Um, the the longer term plan, which we'd understood for quite a few years, was that they were developing a Long March Nine, which would be kind of a Saturn V class, like hundred tons to Leo um, launcher. That would be ready for a test flight somewhere between twenty twenty eight and twenty thirty. Uh, the date keeps changing for some reason when when they talk about this. <laughs> um, so I mean, if they if they develop that launcher and they use that, so that would launch into low Earth orbit. The Long March Five B would send up the crewed spacecraft, and then they would have a Earth orbit rendezvous, and off they go to the moon. If they do that, they're looking at twenty thirties to do that. So if they do this new launcher, then maybe mid twenty twenties they could go around the moon. That would be something. But for actual, yeah, I haven't seen like serious plans on a, a lander so we haven't seen much development there one thing that is interesting which you probably wanted to talk about later would be the the Chang'e 5 mission absolutely. which is a lunar sample return yeah absolutely yeah yeah so that should be launching late this year um there's some kind of indication maybe late october somewhere around about there but we'll have to see so this would be the first Lunar sample returns since, I think it was 1976, which was Luna 24 from the Soviet, uh, Soviet Union. So the interesting thing about that is instead of taking the direct return route, which Luna 24 did, so just like launching from the lander straight back to Earth, they, the Chinese are going to put the lander on the moon, then they're going to scoop up the samples, put it into an ascent vehicle, that's going to go up into lunar orbit and rendezvous with the service module, which will then take the samples back to Earth. So the complexity of this design makes you think, okay, why are they doing it like this? Why are they doing it like this? Why do they not do the direct thing? And the, the obvious thing would be, okay, they're kind of testing for landing astronauts on the moon and then getting them back to Earth. So um, yeah, there's a lot of science that this is what China wants to do. But um, yeah, I think the timeline is looking like 2030s unless they do something to kind of expedite this, which is possible with a new launcher and if they if they have some kind of lander plans, which they're working on. Right, yeah, absolutely. I mean, they seem to be in a similar boat to the Americans. I mean, I always think, well, I've not actually seen a lander yet, so the, the thought about 20, getting to 2024 <laughs> does, seem, does seem, yeah, like you said, extremely ambitious. So I, I think... It's it's good at least at least China look as though they're gearing up for for something at the moon, which presumably does give America that incentive 
to get things done quicker. Do you think that? Do, do you think there is that rivalry between uh, China and America in the same in the same old way that there was between Russia and America, or the USSR, I should say, in America? Um, that, that's very hard to say. I'd be very interested to hear what um, what the aerospace industry and community in 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 the US really thinks about this. I mean, there's a range of views where some completely dismiss anything China's doing as just prestige. And then on the other end, you have people saying that, look, China's going to take over the moon and they've already got a communication satellite beyond the moon in a, a grunge point. And if we don't do something. So it's, it, um, I wonder how much of that is using China to kind of boost their own kind of ideas and plans rather than actually being concerned. It's, it's very hard to say, but it's a very interesting question and it's very interesting to see how um, the US reacts to, to whatever China does, especially with regards to the moon. Yeah, I mean, it's, cause it, it's quite useful, isn't it, for China because China can at least see what the, what the blueprint that the US laid down in terms of space exploration, can't they really? And you can see... They're gearing up to sort of do all the same things that America have done, that, that NASA have done, I suppose. Um, but it, it, it's, there's other rivalries, of course, aren't there, with China? And I know that when you speak to Indian space experts, they, they see China as the sort of rival nation to them. But do China see India as a, as a, a, a rival? Or, or barely notice it? I, I can't work that one out. Or is, is there a, a regional space race? between those two? I wouldn't say a space race, but they are very kind of aware of um, the military and diplomatic and prestige implications of, say, what Japan and what India and what China are doing. So they're all, all very carefully looking at what, what, what's, what's going on. Um, how much of a race there is, I don't know. Um, and I don't know enough about either Japan's or India's um, space programs. Um, looking at the launch rate, you can see that um, you know it's very hard to compare. Um, also, what is it, 34 that China launched last year and the year before that was 39. So that's uh, you know that was ahead of the world in many regards. Some of that is kind of launching infrastructure that the Russians and Europeans and the Americans already have, so they're kind of catching up. That's why partly why they have a high launch rate. But to be able to have all those orbital launches and have all those payloads, I think that says a lot about the, the Chinese kind of space industry and how um, the, what depth it has. So, um, on the other hand, in 2014, when India managed to put the Mangalayan orbiter around Mars, I think that was kind of um, a bit of a blow to China. So they, uh, you know, officially they congratulated India, but there was also kind of mumblings among the public about okay well how has india just gone and done this and we haven't why aren't we there so um that could that could be one factor in why they pushed hard to um get this mars 2020 orbiter and rover mission which they have now um that that might be an factor in, in getting that actually approved and launching like in 2020 rather than 2022 or later 
Yeah, so so yeah, tell us a little bit about that mission because it's it's one mission I don't really know that much about. Caught up in the excitement of things like the Franklin Rover and all that. So yeah, yeah, tell us a little bit about the Chinese twenty twenty Mars mission. Okay, so this is actually going to be China's first interplanet, um, first independent interplanetary mission. So they they did have a, a launch in twenty eleven, where they had this Yinghua one. Um, orbiter, which was piggybacking on a Russian launch, which was the Phobos Grunt, um, which was a um, mission, which was going to be a Phobos sample return, which is which would have been such a cool mission. However, that didn't leave Earth orbit, which was a shame. So China's back now and doing this by itself with a Long March Five rocket, which is China's largest rocket by far, and when it was launched the second time in 2017, it failed. It failed to reach orbit. And it took 900 days, over 900 days, I think it was, to get it flying again. So at the end of December, China had this Long March 5 launch, and they really needed that to go well for um, this Mars mission to go ahead, um, Chang'e 5 sample return, and also the space station, which they've been planning since 1992. So that, that, that was huge. So that launch went okay, it went very well. So now in July... There's a was it two and a half or three week um, Mars launch window in late July, mid late July to early August. So it's looking like July. I think Xinhua said yesterday um, they'll be launching in July from this one uh, Chang coastal launch site. So the interesting thing is, um, which might be. Um, partly related to the, the India thing. So India launched an orbiter. So China is going with an orbiter and rover combo in its first launch to Mars. So that's quite ambitious. So I think the, the spacecraft is around about five tons altogether. So that will be um, an orbiter with high and medium resolution um, cameras and then a 240-kilo rover, which will land somewhere near um, Mons Elysium, up kind of like in the northwest, if you're looking at a flat map. I think they've, they've tested the parachutes back in 2016, so they had some kind of high-speed high parachutes ready. The landing technology with the thrusters, that's derived from the Chang'e 3 and Chang'e 4 missions, or the, the lunar landings, which they had in 2013 and 2019. So it seems that all the different parts of this already. All the payloads have been integrated to the spacecraft. They've overcome the challenges of trying to simulate kind of a Mars landing on Earth, given the different gravity and the thin atmosphere and so on. So they've worked on all these different aspects. It seems about ready to go. And it would, well, so we have Mars 2020 from NASA. We have the ESA Rosalind Franklin rover. And then you have this, um, it's currently called Huaxing Yihao, which is kind of Mars 1. Um, so not a very exciting name so far. Maybe they change it. I'm not sure about that. So you have these three landing attempts going on. So only NASA's landed successfully and operated something on Mars. So it's going to be interesting to see if China can make it first time and then if ESA and Russia can kind of um, make up for what happened in 2016 with the first ExoMars. So this, this, is, this is very challenging. Um, I think that it will say a lot about what... Um, China is capable of if they can pull this off, but also that I think they're in this for the you know the long haul. So if it doesn't go well, then I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, they are planning a Mars sample return after this, which would be 
2028 to 2030, sometime um, one of those launch windows. And that would be if NASA and ESA don't get their plans going, then that's going to be the first ever. And the, the science that could come out of that could be, you know, a revelation. So, I mean, there's a kind of mini space race there, isn't there? You, you, you can, the fact that China are trying to do that presumably does put a rocket up ESA and NASA's bum to, to get that. <laughs> to get that sample return mission working because it's yeah you, you don't kind of want to be beaten to it by your by your rivals and it well I, well actually there's a there, there's an interesting point isn't there with with China and the people that they work with and their collaborations if we if we move away from rivalries with because uh, um, ESA can work with China, but uh, but the Americans try and avoid. Well, aren't really allowed to, are they? Is there? Do you see a thawing of that attitude, or or, or do you think that that's just stuck for good? I think we can see kind of um, what's been going on in international relations and certain uh, national political environments over the last, say, four years or so, that <laughs> things can change quite quickly and quite dramatically. And sometimes it doesn't make very much sense. But, um, yeah, so at the moment there is this um, language inserted into um, uh, an appropriations bill in the U.S. Congress, which doesn't completely prohibit NASA from working with China, but they, ha- but they would have to give something like 60 days notice and have clearance from the FBI to say there's no kind of national security um, danger to dealing with China in this particular aspect. So it's a very high bar to kind of do anything with, with China. Um, I would say that it doesn't look very good at the moment. Um, if that's what you wanted to see, if you wanted to see um, the US and China kind of combine to achieve some kind of goal. So one, it's hard to see what kind of goal that they would it would be so important that they would need to come together to do. Um, I mean, they could be involved in the gateway. I mean, in terms of capabilities, they could be involved in, you know, almost anything now, given the launches and the um, experience they have of various large satellite and spacecraft and so on. Um, but the thing is that at the moment, things between China and the United States are very tense. But the thing is that this will sometimes this will maybe come to a head, or then maybe it will be somehow eased in some way, where there's some kind of dispute, and then you know they realize, okay, well maybe we were a bit close to something very very much catastrophic there. So, you know, how can we move forward and build some trust, and you know look forward, and maybe you could say that perhaps space could be one avenue in the future in which. They look to kind of, you know, build some trust and and try to move forward together. I mean, that that's not really a prediction or a hope or anything like that. It's just trying to think about how exploration kind of goes forward in in kind of human terms. And um, in, we sometimes see these things kind of, um, you know, big exploration efforts happen after wars or something like that. So um, it's certainly something that at the moment it doesn't look like there's very many opportunities but things things might change and it might change in strange ways so it's something to very much keep an eye on the lot that long march five um launch at the end of last year it that kind of does point that that somehow the chinese space 
program is is a little bit fragile and it has this kind of single point of failure. It, had that gone wrong, that would have set back a whole heap of ambitions, moon, Mars and uh, space station ambitions. And it's just this one point of fa- uh, failure. Is is that a problem? Is that something that you can see China addressing soon? Yeah, I think that, that that's a that's a fair point. Um, of course, this was a, a, a new launcher. You know, new launchers can be very difficult. So Ariane Five had a, a hard start to things. So that's kind of normal, in a sense. But at the same time, we've seen the Chang'e Five mission and the space station. I mean, they were supposed to start launching in 2018. Um, if if the if that second launch had gone well in 2017, they would have tested the Long March 5B already. Then they would have been, you know, if everything had gone well, then now you might have one or two of the modules already up and docked in space and astronauts making visits. So it, it has delayed things, um, and it has been a single point of failure. Um, and actually, the development of the Long March 5 did take a lot longer than they had originally hoped. So I think they maybe looking to get it flying in 2012 rather than 20, late 2016, or it might have even been earlier than that. But um, I think that's another reason behind the um, this opening of the space sectors, especially the launch and the small satellite sectors, is that they're able to then have alternatives, mm. uh, alternative access to space and low-cost ac- access to space so that, you know, if there, if there are problems with the long marches, then they have um, alternatives in which they can continue launches. And um, especially in the event of some kind of a conflict, they, they would still be able to kind of get satellites up very quickly. I think that's one reason why you're seeing a lot of these um, Kwaijo 1A, which are kind of semi-commercial, but really they're spin-offs from a state, state-owned enterprise. So I think that's one reason behind why those launches are you know being developed and being deployed. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, one intriguing one that I saw on your Twitter feed was the was a they're going to be building a reusable long march. Is that correct? Yeah, so that's the the long march eight, which they are hoping to launch sometime in twenty twenty. So I'm not quite sure when. Um, so that would be kind of taking long march seven. Um, uh, kerosene and liquid oxygen heritage launcher and some from uh, like a, I think a, maybe an upper stage from the Long March 3B which is you know an older launcher and then trying to then see if they can get this kind of reusable uh, first stage going so when I've spoken to some people in the um, in kind of uh, involved in these launch vehicles, in developing and manufacturing these launch vehicles, they haven't been convinced by the economic arguments of um, reusability. So this is kind of a test. And this Long March 8, they did change their plans. It was, was originally going to be expendable and just simply boost their capabilities to launch to sun-synchronous orbits. But they decided instead, based on um, SpaceX, Blue Origin, to a lesser degree that, okay, this is the way that the industry is going. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to look into this. So that's going to be interesting to see how that goes. It would be great if they would actually have, um, you know, a live stream of this, although I doubt it very much. 
So, <laughs> yeah, so I, I, yeah, I don't think we're going to get kind of like, um, you know, the Falcon 9 blooper reel yeah. or anything like that. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's an interesting thing that they're, they're taking account, uh, taking, you know, account of what's going on internationally and trying to kind of keep up with things. So, but uh, have they done any sort of grasshopper tests? Have they done any of that sort of early preliminary stuff that SpaceX used to love sticking on their feeds? They done any of those, or or just wouldn't we know? Well, the only thing I can kind of think of coming from Cask was they they did this kind of um, a landing, but it was using kind of a jet engine rather than a rocket engine. So they were testing the guidance and and, and so on and avionics and whatnot, but they weren't actually doing this with the you know mm. Kerolox engine. So it's kind of like okay, well interesting but you know you're talking about launching an orbital launcher so yeah what's what's going on of course there's this company link space which um they've been working on some kind of um was it new line one which would be an orbital reusable launcher so a very very light lift so looking at 200 kilograms or something like that to to leo rather than you know a huge mm. comparatively huge um falcon 9 but uh, but yeah, it's it. Yeah, that that's the thing. Sometimes these things just come out of the blue, and it's kind of like, oh, you're doing that now. Well, we had no idea right here. Yeah, <laughs> beyond China. Yeah, yeah I mean, that, I I did find that intriguing. That 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 yeah, the the biggest kind of oh yeah, you know, we've seen the SpaceX rocket, but we're not convinced by that economic argument that uh, that you can keep refurbishing these things, and it makes sense. And uh, they seem to be the only the the Chinese seem to be the only people really making that point in any kind of strong way at all. Yeah, I, I think in in part. So they they um, as ever they don't want to be left behind. So they they're checking this out. Um, on the other hand, there was um, I think on the fiftieth anniversary of this cask um, enterprise, they unleashed. Unleashed. So they released. <laughs> they released like this um, space transportation roadmap, which ran up to like 2050. And it's hard to know what to think about this because um, some of the near-term things were kind of like Long March um, Five, um, Long March Eight, which we just mentioned, Long March Nine. But then they said that okay, by 2035, we want all our launches to be kind of reusable or fully reusable. I think it was the was the term or how it translated. So I don't know about second stages and, and so on, but I imagine that they're talking first stages. So they are in some sense um, taking it seriously, but maybe not just not get carried away. The other thing that was in that roadmap was um, a nuclear shuttle by around 2050. And um, what was it? Orbital space planes. So lots of... Um, I think some people would describe as unicorns, but let's say very, very ambitious plans in there. Yeah, actually, actually, that reminds me of um, they seem to have a technology that was very similar to the Saber engine. Do you know much about that? Yeah, I did see. I saw something online not not long back, and I thought, oh, well, it's obvious where that's come <laughs> from. Um, but I don't, I, on, I don't know anything about about that. Okay, so. <laughs> So, I mean, in, in this commercial um, space sector or private space sector, although people obviously straight away say, well, it's not private, it's China, but okay. But um, there are so many companies. There's at least 20 companies. They're either working on launches or um, or engines, and these can be Kerolox, they can be methane, they can be monopropellants. 
um, so they can be reusable or, or not variable thrust, all these different things that are going on. So there's, there's so much going on, it's very hard to keep, keep, um, keep track and try to kind of work out, okay, which ones are going to make it and which ones are, you know, just not going to get very far. So it's really fascinating and time-consuming to follow that. So um, there was a test the other day, I think it was Beijing Deep, Deep Blue Aerospace, which is one of the much lesser known um, companies, but they're doing engine tests. So they're, you know, clearly making progress and they're not just, you know, looking for investment for the sake of it. Yeah. And who are the kind of uh, personalities of the Chinese program? Because obviously we've got people like Jim Bridenstine and all, all, all those peeps over in at NASA, but who are the sort of movers and shakers in the Chinese sector? That's a good, that's a good question. I think they're mostly scientists, to be honest, um, because they're able to kind of go and give talks and those talks are able to be kind of, you know, they can have articles about them. Other than that, I mean, if you're talking about the space, the state aerospace industry, you have a few people who talk now and again at like press conferences or then at political events. But the main ones would be kind of um, Ouyang Zhuyuan, who is like a cosmochemist. And he he's kind of must be around about 80 now. Um, so he's kind of um, a big proponent of uh, lunar exploration. He was the, the guy behind this kind of idea of mining helium-3 from the moon, which we won't get into. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's quite well known. He, um, he'll speak about exploration and science and so on. Um, Ye Pei Jian is another one who's um, involved in the in the lunar exploration side of things again he's kind of um, advanced in years and probably retired but still influential and people listen to what he says so i think he was he was someone who said something um about saying that kind of cis lunar space is analogous to the south china sea you know so there were lots of people jumping on this saying look china's trying to take over <laughs> you know the moon and space so it's probably getting a bit carried away he was speaking to the military then at that time so he's kind of trying to kind of get them you know um to take space seriously maybe or then again maybe he has some very kind of clear strong strategic thinking and is backed by people's liberation army <laughs> it's very hard to say um long lehao is um, another one of these old guys who's kind of the face of the rocket launches and so on so he was interviewed after the long march launches the, the new rockets and so on and so yeah um other than that um i think most people think of the cnsa the china national space administration as kind of analogous to nasa but really it's not it's just kind of the international face of the chinese space program so they don't have much power but they're there to kind of um go to meetings and have discussions and so on but they're not really the ones which is which are driving what's happening in the chinese space industry okay is, is, so that that would be cask would it would be would be the people that are driving <laughs> um to to a degree so it gets it starts to get very complicated <laughs> so if you think about china um you'd have three kind of pillars really you'd have the government and the military down on the bottom and then up above you'd have the communist party of china and the communist party of china is in control of the military it's in control of the government it's basically you know it makes all the decisions so they would have some kind of what were called um small leading groups and they would have um some kind of 
strategic vision and decision making over the space industry and that would filter down through the ministries in charge of cask and and so on so cask does have um, leeway to kind of pursue different projects that it wants and to you know have an input as far as we can tell into what it does and why but um, but most of it would be coming from the the party from some kind of um, party level high level decision making which i have no idea about yeah it's all quite uh, covert isn't it yeah very very nebulous and kind of um, opaque but, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well so if if people want to know more about what you do what's the what's the best place they can find uh, what best find place to find you and 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 your work on the chinese space program yeah so i'm very um active on twitter uh, my handle is aj underscore fi um i write at space news uh once or twice a week um and i really suggest that you follow the the first up newsletter which which um which we have which jeff faust puts together so if you want to get an idea of what's going on in the industry and beyond every day and also a funny quote at the end that's it excellent truly excellent um, yeah. <laughs> i agreed yeah um also write for the planetary society um occasionally um, updating on what's going on on the exploration side um, and they, they also have a new newsletter which is the downlink um, so they sum up the exploration side of things that's quite interesting um, I write for IEEE Spectrum which is um, excellent um, technology focused uh, publication uh, Sky and Telescope and also Space.com as well so um, there's um, what we had this week alone has been um, well some fantastic images from Chang'e 4 from the far side of the moon um, and some details about this new deep space crewed um, spacecraft which will be going up in the next few months yeah I saw, I, I saw that that would that look super exciting um, yeah and I guess they're not far behind are they in that case I mean how does that how does that vehicle compare to the Orion capsule supposed to be a multi-purpose um, vehicle so initially it would be going to the space station which would allow them to send up um, between three to six astronauts but the space station is going to hold three astronauts for six months at a time so it'll be sending three astronauts and 500 kilograms of cargo with them um, and also allow them to bring cargo back with the astronauts as well so like experiments and so on but um, the, the, the point of this is that if you put the service module onto this capsule, then you can go to deep space. So the idea is that, yes, it's um, kind of analogous to Orion in, in some senses, although people draw comparisons to, like, the dragon mm. um, with regards to this. But the actual the, the test flight is going to have a, an apogee of 8,000 kilometers. So it's going to be testing high-speed re-entry, so testing this kind of new... Heat, heat protection that they have for re-entry and testing the parachutes and so on. So it's going to be a very interesting test. So if that goes well, it would show that, well, okay, they're not they're not far behind having their own version of Orion. Um, and one of the guys behind this was telling me that um, because they developed the Shenzhou not so long ago, then the kind of life support controls and all that, they'll be able to bring in all the, all the systems into this quite quickly if the test flight goes well. So the test flight's testing basically avionics, um, performance in um, in Leo, the parachutes, the re-entry, the landing, and 
recovery as well. Yeah, it's, well, it's always the heat shields, it seems to me, that's the problem. <laughs> so, yeah, that'd be really interesting, <laughs> won't it? Well, th- well, well, thanks very much for taking the, the, the time and, and, and speaking to me. There's so many things to look into, isn't there, with the, with the Chinese? And I, 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 I can't wait to keep following it because it, it's one of the sort of most rapidly changing programs, isn't it? So that it always kind of takes you by surprise when something new pops up. So no, I, I appreciate the uh, the opportunity to uh, you know have a chat about this. Thanks very much. The interplanetary podcast is alive. It's not just us. He is also putting the ace back into space. It's official. I'll tell you something, Jamie. After t- we were talking afterwards, and and he absolutely loves your sense of humour. Oh really? He's a big fan of yours, Jamie. Big fan. Big fan. Oh my god. So wait, are, are you are you telling me that maybe one day I'll be asked to, to be a leader on a panel? <laughs> Uh, yeah, if, if there's like a sort of... Maybe Andrew will invite me. Well, that's very flattering to hear. I'm a big fan also. <laughs> It'll be just me and Andrew. <laughs> right, Jamie, you know we work very hard on this podcast and we do lots we of do, things. We do, yeah. Who's it made... Who actually facilitates that and, and actually means that we can keep going? Because without these people, I don't think we could keep going, could we? Who who are these people, Jamie? Matt, we... We genuinely couldn't. It's it's tricky when you've both got very stressful full time jobs um, to to smash this out every week. But we're not moaning. I tell you what, we're doing. We're thanking our patrons because genuinely, if you all buggered off tomorrow, then we'd probably have to pack this up. I know that sounds a bit doom and gloomy, but you make it happen. All of our little. Um, trips and uh, an investment into research and equipment that we need comes from you. Absolutely true. Matt, if people want to join this clan of legends, mm-hmm. how do they go about it? They should go to www.interplanetary.org.uk and make their way to Patreon via that way. Or they can go to patreon.com forward slash interplanetary where they can donate and join people like Catherine, who joined this week. Welcome. Welcome, Catherine. So, yes, it would be absolutely fantastic to see Yol on there. And, of course, that does give you access to the Discord. And I cannot tell you how cool the Discord is. We have lots and it lots gives of you access very to funny conversations. In you get the first invitation to our events. We're doing loads more live stuff this year, hopefully. Uh, we've got a few really exciting things in the books that we can't speak about quite yet, haven't we? Oh, we certainly do. Um, So keep talking. There's extra content. Uh, We want you to be involved in literally putting the show together. So get involved. Yeah, we, we, of course, will be live at the Science Museum uh, on Yuri's Night at the Science Museum late. Uh, It's the 25th of March. So 25th of March at the Science Museum, Yuri Night late, lots of other space stuff coming on, but definitely come oh, and say there's so hello. much great stuff you know it's not just us there's there's a host of people uh it's going to be a great day and night so get that in your diary come down let's have a let's have a big old geek out followed by a beer maybe somewhere in london man oh, absolutely and saying? i'm gonna and i'm what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna buy some merch and we might have a little giveaway let's have a little giveaway jamie oh. of, a, of a of some of some interplanetary podcast mugs and merch i tell you what if that doesn't make you get the tube to South Kensington, I don't know what will. Well, it's going to be super fun. It's all organised by the wonderful Harriet, who's been absolutely amazing as always. Harriet Brettel is our 
Lord and Saviour. So please follow her on Twitter and see all the amazing work and shows that she gets involved yeah. with. She'll be there too, so come down. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to go, Jamie. It's a pretty miserable day, but I'm going to go. And uh, I wish all uh, good weekends for our lovely Spodcats. Matt, just remember, when you think it's a miserable day, just know this, that the rain is only part of it. Above the rain, Matt, there's the solar system and then there's stuff like black holes, there's planets, there's galaxies, there's Brian Blessed soaring overhead. And also, there's the the new game on Discord where we're trying to decide if you can guess what the next name of the Rocket Lab Electron's going to be. Oh, that's a great game. It's a good game. Any any clues? Oh, well, we don't know. Well, I mean, it's 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 always a crazy name like "Look No More Fingers" and stuff like that. So, one of my guesses was, <laughs> "I wish I had three hands" or something like that, and it was from the film Total Recall. <laughs> that is great. I've just remembered what scene that's from. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Um, well, I'll see you soon. See you soon. Bye bye. Bye. bye.